Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Okay, I'm joined by an old friend and a new friend. The old friend is Sari Martin Concepcion. We'll hear her. We'll hear from her in a second. She's getting her tea or coffee and and getting all set up here. The new friend is Josh Hook, also known as Joshua N. Hook, psychologist at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas. Josh, thanks for being here. Hey, so great to be here. Thanks for having me. Sari, did you want to give an editorial note about the sound of your voice today? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just sick. So I'll be like comedy relief or something. I don't if know. you want, you could like type your questions into like a voice generator thing and then deliver them through, you know, <laughs> robotic <laughs> That's means. Right. That's right. AI, it's the, the way of the future. So we're here to talk about what is called in the research literature, intellectual humility. In my own mind, the way I think about it is careful thinking, but those are not exactly the same thing. Josh, you're going to help us kind of parse out what intellectual humility is exactly. But I asked you, you know, if there was kind of a good, like a non-technical sort of background that we could pull from. And you mentioned, you know, the way that you changed your mind on an issue. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? And then we'll get into the nitty gritty. So when I think of intellectual humility and how it it helps us in our lives. I think that, you know, a lot of times we are really sure that what we believe is right. And we're, we're pretty certain about things. And that's not always in our best interests. For me personally, I grew up in a pretty conservative Christian home and was, was pretty clear about what I believed about things like, like sexuality, LGBT issues. You know, I was taught that being gay was a sin I guess I was more aware of the limitations of those views and those teachings and a process where I became more open to different perspectives. One of my good friends uh, came out as gay and I walked with him through a painful time of uh, being rejected by our church and, and just navigating that uh, and what that meant for him. But that experience didn't necessarily change my mind, but it it motivated me to do a lot of reading and research about you know, what the scripture actually says about LGBT issues. And so I read books that kind of portrayed the conservative Christian sexual ethic, and then also a lot of books and resources that 
uh, offered a more gay affirming perspective and ended up coming to to a different place. And even now, I kind of I don't know that I necessarily will say that I know for sure what the Bible says about LGBT issues, but I think that both perspectives have merit. And so so for me, I there was more space in that issue and more space to to be loving and caring and and affirm my LGBT friends in their sexuality and in their relationships. The way I often think about it, and I don't know if this is quite intellectual humility per se, but like if like a thought experiment, which which happens in the real world, someone is raised in a jihadist, uh, essentially cult, right? What kind of tools would we want them to have such that they can get out? And the reason I like to think of it as jihadist is because if you make it Christian, it gets sticky for people and they... You know, they might agree with some of it, but not others. So take something that like, you know, nobody wants anybody to be in. And then we want to say, okay, well, we should all probably have those skills because to some degree or other, we're going to be raised with falsehoods, with potentially damaging or hateful ideas, just because we're human and we're sinful, however you want to say it, right? I think that's pretty accurate. I mean, I think ideally we would be, as we grow into adults, we would be equipped with the skills and abilities to be able to kind of more narrow in on what is true yeah. uh, in our lives and the world. But I think th- the problem comes in, you know, and, and not necessarily a problem, but just the reality of, of how we're raised. We're raised in a certain context, a certain cultural context where we are taught what is true and what to believe. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think it's a good thing to be raised with with beliefs and values and have some sort of structure. Yeah, like if Trip Fuller from Homebrew Christianity or if Mason Menenga from a People's Theology came on and were trying to convince me that capitalism is evil. It, <laughs> now I'm getting now I'm getting very uh in groupy here with our No, you're very close to home. <laughs> yeah, now I'm yeah. getting very very close to home. Um, you know, I don't have their full-throated critique of capitalism. But if I can't figure out where I do maybe agree and where where we overlap in terms of what kinds of policy we would want to see implemented for a fair country, you know, like if I if I can't inhabit their view for a bit, then I'm not going to pull anything useful from that conversation where we might land differently, right? So it's it is these kind of intellectual virtues, these sort of intellectual tools something like that. So tell us, Josh, as a researcher from that perspective, how do you define what is intellectual humility? Yeah. And I, and I want to start off to say that there isn't a, a full consensus about what researchers think intellectual humility is. So I'll give so you common. Yeah. I'll give you my, my best take, but it's not the end all be all. So, so I, I think about intellectual humility using two main parts. And one is a more internal part and one is a more interpersonal part. So so the internal aspect of intellectual humility, I think, is being aware of and owning our limitations when it comes to intellectual matters. So beliefs, thoughts, uh, how we think and reason about things. And then the more interpersonal aspect involves being open to different perspectives and points of view, rather than just being locked in on my own uh, position. That's helpful. There's a sense of if you're so confident that you're right, you know, maybe there's no need to engage with people who are different. Or maybe you engage, but in more of a, you know, I want to convert you way rather than let's have a conversation. I was kind of seeing how long we could go before, <laughs> before in my mind, I, I can't help but come up against this kind of barrier, which is like, but isn't that why many religious and other systems, not even not strictly religious, but even sort of multi-level marketing companies and various approaches to the world, isn't a lack of intellectual humility a pretty good determiner of whether something will grow and make converts? Because people have all this zeal and they might not convert most people, but they'll get a few and then those people will have that zeal. And do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, you know, and I'm not a person who comes on here and says, that intellectual humility is the end-all be-all. I think there are some challenges with intellectual humility as well, even though 
at a, at a deep level, I do think it's a good thing for us to have. There are benefits to feeling sure and like you have it right and, and feeling certain about your beliefs that, yeah. that provides us with a sense of security. It, it feels good to have it right. But going back to like my jihadist group example, if you are unaware of your limitations and you are not open to other perspectives, you're going to put on a fucking vest. I mean, like depending on the situation of your upbringing, the stakes can be all the way up to life or death. Of course, they're usually not. But like in the case of if your gay friend, right, like your capacity to have seriously harmed your friend, uh, had you not been open to go, you know what, I'm going to engage these capacities that I have and I'm going to see if there's something there. And in that way, you were able to be loving toward your friend and also to, to get closer, hopefully, to the case, the truth, whatever. I do think a big benefit of intellectual humility is – I think we're better able to engage with people who are different. Yeah. And so to the, to the extent that that's important to you or important at a broader level, I think, I think that's a good thing. One of the things you, you sent Sari and I a, a packet of research. How dare you? So much homework for one <laughs> little episode. I know no, I no. felt a little bad, but <laughs> no, 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 actually very helpful. And, and uh, you know, we, we can say here where we are planning and going to do sort of a, a series of episodes around this topic, maybe not calling it intellectual humility exactly, but essentially it's, it's around this research and different applications of it. So it was okay for us. It was, it was good for us to do that extra work up front before talking to you. But one of the things that I found in one of those articles was this idea of a virtuous mean or a golden mean, an Aristotelian mean between, on the one hand of a continuum, intellectual arrogance, and on the other hand, servility, basically being a doormat, right? And so anytime I see an Aristotelian uh, golden or virtuous mean, my ears perk up. I, I am very drawn to that sort of model of, of virtue and of really sort of accuracy and moving through the world in the best possible way. What do you, what do you, do you like that, that visual over here? We've got just, you're just an arrogant prick. And over here we've got, you have no idea what you believe and you will just believe what anybody tells you. And intellectual humility might be somewhere in between in the middle of those two poles. As researchers, we tend to think about intellectual humility as, as a good thing and as solving the problem of intellectual arrogance. You know, not everyone has that of the, the struggle. You know, there may be some people who don't have enough confidence in their intellectual perspective or beliefs. Um, and for them, uh, their work may not look the same as someone who is really arrogant. And, right. and there, there, there's some social cultural stuff that, that happens here too, where, you know, Heather was talking about, you know, it's in some level, uh, women are often socialized to maybe keep their beliefs down or perspectives down or be quieter about those things. And same thing, uh, sometimes racial ethnic minorities might be socialized to do the same thing in certain contexts. So I think we really need to be more in tune with, you know, where someone is at on that continuum, if we're going to help them be the best thinker and best person they can be. Well, that makes me think of, of working with clients. So I've had uh, many clients for whom agency is actually an issue right now. This is not quite on the sort of intellectual virtues or confidence continuum, but let's just take an agency continuum. So for those clients, we're working on identifying what they are feeling, what they want, identifying their desires, their goals, right. And, and sort of working through roadblocks of being able to name them, advocate for themselves to other people, you know, et cetera. Whereas when I'm a client, maybe when our friend Tony Jones <laughs> is a client, we're on the other side of that. Uh, patrons who listen to Tony often will get that joke. You know, we're on the other side and, and we, we might think a little more highly of ourselves than we ought to. If anything, you know, we're not, uh, we don't lack agency. What we have to work on is actually bringing our desire to be agents in the world and, and let that be subsumed by our care for others and our advocacy of others. And so in that way, we got to find the middle. Therapy is a great location for that because you get all this time with one person to sort of really get to know them. And you can and you can kind of figure out and help them figure out where are they on these various continuums. 
podcasts are tougher, right? We're just putting something out there, but I like putting that out there for people. If, if you resonated with what Josh said around, I, you know, actually my intellectual sort of thoughts and, and habits and whatever, like no one ever asks me about those, you know, that, well, then maybe intellectual humility is not the thing that you have to work on. But if you are, if you resonate with me week to week, then uh, I got, I got a bitter pill for you to swallow, dear listener. Let's, let's work on this together. <laughs> uh, you're also reminding me of something Daryl Van Tongren, your uh, oftentimes collaborator, said in an episode that will have aired before this aired about humility. And I'm paraphrasing. You might know the exact language because you guys co-authored a paper on humility in general. But he said something like humility is seeing yourself as the proper size, you know, not seeing yourself as as less than you are, but not seeing yourself as more than you are and and really kind of getting accurate on that. And I, I loved that phrasing. I don't know if you want to elaborate on that at all. Another way that some people have defined humility is having an accurate view of self. Yeah. And it gets at this idea that we don't see ourselves as more important or more influential than we should. Uh, but then I think some people struggle with humility because they see it maybe similar to like humiliation or mm -hmm. just really kind of putting themselves down. And I don't think that's really what humility is either. And so it gets at the other side of the coin that if we don't see ourselves as less than we are either, it's kind of somewhere in the middle. Let's talk about both the internal and, and external slash interpersonal elements uh, or categories that you mentioned. And, and you said something earlier about how it's not always in our best interests to lack intellectual humility, to sort of take the default thing that's given to us makes me think of Plato and the cave analogy, right? That like, you got to do, you got to do work to see the world more clearly and it, and it pays off. So how is it not in our best interests to be unaware of our intellectual limitations? You know, an example that comes to mind is like a college student who goes off to, uh, to college and maybe they have, they have one particular way of thinking or believing that they grew up with. Maybe it's a certain religious perspective and they get confronted with different perspectives at school. So maybe they are introduced to the theory of evolution or, or, or various other ways of thinking, or maybe they take a class on the Bible and kind of the, the historical context of the Bible and how it was written, et cetera. And it just blows their mind, you know? Yeah. If you don't have some intellectual humility or some openness or some awareness of your limitations, you can go one of two ways. You either shut down and block off all that new information, or it could just destroy your worldview. You could just kind of cut everything and, and be floundering. Whereas as a middle ground is being open to it and thinking about it and you know, thinking critically about what this new information means and what you want to do with it. Not necessarily that you immediately react either by taking it all in or throwing it all out, but you, you kind of walk thoughtfully and, and maybe come to a new place, maybe accept some of the new information as true, but you do it in a thoughtful way. I just listened the other day to an episode. It will have come out, you know, a month or two before this comes out on homebrewed Christianity, where Trip Fuller had Ryan Burge on the sort of religion and politics data scientist. And one of the things that they were talking about that people are always surprised by because the common knowledge that the, the accepted wisdom is opposite of the reality. The accepted wisdom is that more education makes you less religious. And the right accepts this, which is why they are afraid of things like public education. They want as, as much government subsidy for charter schools and private schools and religious schools as they can get. They want their children to go to Christian colleges and not secular, right? So that's kind of a, one of the big drivers on that side. And then people on the left also assume this. They assume, well, once I'm educated, that means I'm going to leave behind the silliness of religion uh, and all of that stuff. And the data just... Like he was saying, like multiple studies, hundreds of thousands of participants. It just never shows that the most religious people in America have master's degrees. They are the most likely to attend regular worship services in terms of education. The least religious are those without a college education. And PhDs are about 
equal to undergrad, right? And what he said, the thing that you find that's different is the more educated you are in, especially in certain fields like liberal arts and whatnot, the less certain you are about some of your religious beliefs. Like you might say, I'm certain that God exists less often. But if you're religious and you're a physicist or whatever, uh, you will say you're certain, but you don't actually lose the religious involvement. You don't lose the attending of services, the the sharing of religious community just because you learn more by becoming more educated in, in the aggregate. Right. And so that's kind of interesting because it seems like one of the I mean, I believe and, and Ryan believes this and and. Almost every researcher worth their snuff, unless they have some crazy theory, sees that like religious involvement is good for people. Um, It's good for them in a myriad of ways. It just kind of made me think of that, that like you can go and get some intellectual humility and it doesn't necessarily keep you from engaging, even as that certainty, uh, which does feel great, drops. I mean, I would hope that there's something good in religion that is stable you know, even as we grow and uh, and learn about the world and our place in it, if not, I think I think that's a problem. So, yeah, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> right? I mean, yeah, and I connect with that myself in my own journey. You know, because it's it's one of deconstruction in a way of my religious upbringing, but then then reconstructing, and it doesn't my my faith life doesn't necessarily look identical as it did before, but. But yeah, I connect with that. I still, there's things about Christianity and church and religion and community that that I love and that are really important to me. And that didn't go away, even though perhaps some of my convictions on specific things, and, and I connect with the certainty piece too, that I think my certainty has decreased a little bit, even yeah. though I've stayed involved. One of the Leary articles, there was a comment about how religiosity and political affiliation didn't correlate to intellectual humility. It said, although people who are religious and politically conservative are often perceived as more <laughs> not intellectually humble, but that it's not actually true, that it's it's pretty uh, it's equal on both sides kind of thing. I thought that was just really Uh-oh, interesting. Sari, you're introducing more catnip into my diet. Careful. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems like, a lo- like money is getting pumped into this research area. Because of political polarization, which is connected to religiosity, too, and religious issues in the United States. And I I just wondered if, Josh, if you feel like intellectual humility is seen as the thing that is needed most, like as the salve for these types of issues that we're experiencing. I just wondered if what you feel about that. Like, do you feel like it is? (laughs) I hope it can contribute. You know, I don't know that it's the end all be all, but we are in a place in our country and world where there there does seem to be increasing political polarization and you know less ability to reach across the aisle and, and understand a different perspective or even work together toward a common good so in our in our country and politics it seems like the the strategy is let's just try to win more than 50% and then we can kind of push through all our stuff and not care about what the other side thinks. And then that works until the next election where, shoot, we're 49% now. And the other side pushes (laughs) through all their, all their stuff. And, you know, there's less like working together. And so, yeah, my hope is intellectual humility could help with that. Again, I think, I think we're fighting a difficult battle because it feels so good to win and to be right. I was also going to ask you about like, because we're talking a lot about intellectual humility as a individual virtue, but I know there's also some research about cultivating it as a a community or group kind of virtue, like a group character, like a church group characterized by intellectual humility. Like what would that look like? Or how do we, we cultivate that? But I can't stop thinking about how intellectual humility is so related to our relationships. Like when someone who you have some respect for or care about or both you find out they have a different view than the one that you've been pretty sure about, walking around pretty sure about. It sort of starts to erode it a little bit and makes space for you to to consider it. So I wonder about the social groups we have being 
echo chambers. <laughs> when we're surrounded by people who agree with us and believe the same things as us, it actually it, it's kind of provides consensual validation that what we believe is true. And so, with, I mean, with religion and the church, this is a challenging thing because we have such a religious marketplace. Like there's for any little permutation, if you live in a big enough city, for any little permutation of what you're looking for, you can find a church that aligns with that perspective. So I think you what you get is a lot of churches and, and not just in religious groups too, other other types of communities as well, where people are agreeing with each other and believing the same thing. And you don't get that opportunity to develop a close relationship with someone and you know, get get a sense of like, oh, they believe something different. Let me, I'm curious about that. I want to understand their perspective more. The most recent patron exclusive episode is the live Q&A edition of Generation Gap Culture Hour. That is my uh, every other month, usually, time with Josh Gilbert and Tony Jones, often to discuss kind of more current events and less, you know, perennial questions of uh, religion and psychology. This was really fun. We, we did it at the mini conference in Seattle last month, and we wanted to get that one up as soon as possible uh, since it's, a, you know, it tends to be a bit more kind of topical and, and timing oriented. It was really fun. I, I think that Tony leaned into his ornery <laughs> old guy persona in a fun way. And, and Josh really, I wouldn't say came out of his shell, but continues to sort of engage more and more. And it was really funny, um, really fun time in the room. And I'm glad to, to let patrons um, be able to experience the recording of that. So if you want to hear that and all the other exclusive episodes for patrons, as well as have access to the Facebook group, which is for patrons only, you can head to patreon.com slash Dan Coke. It's five bucks a month and the link is in the show notes. It's the best way to support this show if that's what you'd like to do. All right, back to my conversation with Josh and Sari. Josh, your own research tends to focus on the overlap of intellectual humility and religion. So let's step away from sociopolitics for a minute. Talk about intellectual humility and religious tolerance, which I know you have a paper on. Yeah, so we, we did a paper on this, and, and the idea behind this paper was that, you know, maybe if, you're, if you have more intellectual humility about your religious beliefs, you would be more open to religious differences and then more tolerant uh, toward people who believe differently. So that's the idea. We did a study of pastors and, um, and we found that, that link uh, between religious intellectual humility and um, religious tolerance. And then, and we also, we also found kind of an interesting relationship. We asked about their, how exposed they are to religious diversity in their everyday life. Mainly we asked about their friends and close, close friends and family members and whether they were the same or different religion as, as they were. And we found this interesting relationship where it, having more diversity in your network in terms of religion was positively related to religious tolerance only if you were more intellectually humble. So what happens if you're not? Well, then it was a little bit, it wasn't, it was a little bit less. So it was, it was kind of this difference that when you're exposed, this idea that when you're exposed to religious differences, it can either foster uh, kind of a, a welcoming atmosphere right. or, or tolerance. But if, but if you're not open to it, it could kind of s even sustain your, your original prejudices or beliefs. So I know I said we were going to pull away from sociopolitics, but Josh, you're, that, <laughs> now I can't help but imagine that there are sociopolitical and personality effects on what you're talking about. So imagine we drop a Hindu meditation center with big signs offering free meditation classes. Thank you for welcoming us into your community on a busy corner in, say, you know, downtown Boston versus Main Street in small town Arkansas. That 
exposure to religious difference is going to play very differently in those communities, which I would assume is a function of the people in those communities and their various postures, sort of their collective posture and their individual postures for this. You know, we can conflate those for the moment. What do you think about like, like, am I on to something there? Yeah, I mean, you might expect, assuming you expect that the people in Boston are going to be more religiously, intellectually humble, you might expect that 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 religious building in their community would foster religious tolerance. Whereas if you expect that people in, I can't remember where else you said, but Arkansas, a group of yeah. Arkansas. My prejudice, if I, you're saying, yeah, if Arkansas. my prejudice is accurate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if your prejudice well, is accurate. Yeah. <laughs> Then we might expect that the religious building in there would actually engender more defensiveness or less less tolerance. Yeah. Okay, so I could be wrong, but let's leave aside my my assumptions about the larger community. But for an individual who had more intellectual humility, they would go, oh, a Hindu meditation center. Great. I'll notice if I happen to notice someone walking around and I, I think I can identify them as being a member of that, I will I will smile. Whereas a person who's like, I don't know, then just the presence of it will actually not do them any good in that sense. Right. That's what. Yeah, that's what we would predict. Okay, that's a little bit less. All right. I'm not I'm not knocking Red America here. I do wonder if there if anyone's done sort of personality level or personality correlations with this kind of stuff. Or is it too early in the research? I'm trying to remember. I'm sure people have. I can't think of any exact research study that I can pull from, but I would expect that, you know, folks who are more, for example, open to experience, that's often looked at with personality, would have higher levels of intellectual humility. That would be my, that would be my prediction. I hope someone does that. That that shouldn't be too hard to run that study. And it'd be, it'd be pretty cool if, if we were wrong about that too. Like, yeah. uh, like, were you surprised by any of the, you know, Sarah, you mentioned, we say that again, Sarah, that the, the factors that were not correlated with it, that we might've thought would have been. The scores on the IH scale were unrelated to how religious someone is or their political affiliation. Yeah. So they're unrelated yeah. to political affiliation. So maybe I'm wrong about that. And uh, maybe my own intellectual humility needs a fucking tune up here. Well, it seems like well, people in big cities are more commonly um, around people who think differently than people in small towns. So I don't know, maybe that has more to do with it than... As I understand it, Josh, tell me if I'm wrong. Mere exposure is not the, the driver here. You know, Mere exposure to religious difference does not make one religiously tolerant. It's that intellectual humility moderates whether exposure increases one's tolerance, right? That's what we found. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You know, there is this kind of common thinking that, you know, liberals are more intellectually humble, conservatives aren't. And my guess is maybe what's going on is that liberals and conservatives, the more extreme you get, are perhaps equally less open to (laughs) the other side. That's my guess too. And I get a lot of (laughs) shit for it from my further left friends all the time. Yeah. There was actually an interesting study. This is on religion, not politics, but I I think Rick Hoyle did this study where he asked for people's attitudes toward religion and he kind of measured it, not just non-religious to very religious, but how how pro-religious they are and how anti-religious they were. So you could go kind of to the Mm. extreme on either side. And he did find a similar finding on both sides. So the extreme pro-religion and the extreme anti-religion were both less intellectually humble. I believe it was about religion. So There's a particular difficulty in some of the circles that I inhabit because of my focus on spiritual abuse and religious trauma. That brings its own element where people have a very good reason often for being anti-religion for instance, if they've been hurt or if their loved ones have been hurt. And of course, I recognize that and consider that to be a good reason for their own personal life. But it gets interesting when those people are researchers or academics or at least have a master's degree, maybe they're clinicians or whatever, they might not be researchers, but where they then assume that the research 
agrees with their intuitions about the value or lack thereof of religion. And it doesn't. I mean, there are potentially some ways to, to parse it that might be a little more, you know, uh, you, I mean, you know this research even better than I do around just the sort of broad based value cross culturally, cross personality type, cross age, you know, of religious practice and community. And so that's kind of always coming up. And I, I guess it will probably always, it will continue to come up as long as I am in circles with, with people who are hurt or have been hurt by, by the, the pain of loved ones. If you were a person who was hurt or abused by a, uh, like a pastor or religious leader, you know, that's, that's going to be an intense, strong predictor of how you view religion in general. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> and it probably ought to be if your yeah. brain is working, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're, and you're going to protect yourself from, from that right. happening again. And, and you're going to want to protect those you care about from that happening. So I think there's been a lot of research on the links between uh, religion, spirituality, and mental and physical health. And, and the majority of those studies find, you know, positive relationships between, between religious participation and mental and physical health variables. So I think, I think overall, that is the probably the main thrust of the findings, but it's certainly not everything, you know, and there, you know, there's research on religious and spiritual abuse and the harmful effects. There's research on oh yeah the relationship between religion and extremism or prejudice. So, I mean, there, there are these pockets of areas where, where religion definitely can be harmful. So I think we have to, you know, hold both up. Totally. In, in that world, I think the solution there is we advocate and, and work toward healthy religion rather than yes. no religion as the antidote. Because I think that no religion just comes with its own unintended consequences. Like, again, when Ryan was talking with Trip, he's like, you know, most of these sort of atheist Sunday communion services like shut down during COVID, they closed their doors. And he said, you know, because they're afraid to ask for money, but it costs money to keep things running. And they're, they're so afraid to look like religion for, for obvious reasons that they just can't sustain. And it's like, okay, so who's going to replace what church does for, you know, like, like, do you have a better model to, you know, or as Jim Wellman from UW told me, like, for the 40 million American men who are getting an hour of free therapy light every week, spending an hour thinking about how to be better parents, better husbands, members of their community, even if they're only half listening, like, are they going to go do that at home, you know, for an hour every week? No, they're going to do it when they go to church. And so if you don't have them going to church, like who's going to fill that gap, right? So it's it's a very complex and difficult question, you know, that the episode that people will have already heard with with Daryl and Tony about how like <laughs> there is a real inherent tension here. Like the the things that religion gives us, it also does have these other consequences. Like the the religious groups that do best are the ones that appeal to our prejudice. They're the ones that appeal to our in-group, out-group stuff. So there there are real problems there. But if you can find a way to have healthy religious communities to me that like evidence wise and just sort of in my own, you know, what seems true to me, that seems to be the the path forward. Uh, if you can have, if I can have my druthers, right? Yeah. I mean, I think you make some good points there that religion does work in a way that is unique in terms of addressing existential concerns, providing us with community and support, providing us with a sense of meaning in life and purpose solves the problem of death. There's there's a lot of things that are packaged into oh, religion yeah. that make it really appealing to folks. And I do think you have situations where people will leave religion and struggle to get some of those needs met in other places. You know, they might try with with politics or with or or maybe even in a group that is anti-religion, you yeah. know, so that but it doesn't quite do all the same things that religion does, I think. So you mentioned earlier, you know, about your friend who came out as gay. That was part of your changing your mind on LGBTQ issues. And I'm wondering, is this phenomenon yet in the empirical research? 
around intellectual humility, the, the element of uh, the element of friendship or relationship and exposure to new ideas. Are we not that far yet into the research? I'm curious about that. You know, I, I don't think there's any studies exactly about that, but it's something I've thought about because and, and this is just my personal experience. Sure. Yeah. But it was almost like the re- the relationship provided the motivation to engage intellectually. And part of me wondered if wonders if maybe that motivation wouldn't have been there unless because it was hard work, you know, to think about changing my mind right. and I, does this mean I'm giving up what I was taught or am I still a Christian or da da da. da. So there were yeah. a lot of, that, that there were a lot of tension there's a lot of tension in that process and it was difficult and challenging. And so part of me wonders if I needed some sort of relational or emotional motivation to engage with that. Doesn't that mean that you already had intellectual humility before the motivation showed up? Ooh. Like you're already pretty, Josh. You're so, (laughs) you're so humble, you know? (laughs) Well, I mean, maybe, maybe a little bit, you know, Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, I could have done something else. I could have just said, no, being gay is a sin and I'm not going to engage with it. I'm not going to think about it. That's what I was taught and I'm sure about it. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not even considering a different perspective. I could have done that. And I didn't for some reason. Well, yeah, that makes me think about asking you about state versus trait. I know that's a concept in psychology, maybe for the benefit of the listeners, you could talk about like the difference between those things. And I think the like elephant in the room here is like, does talking about intellectual humility, like make us automatically more humble? It doesn't seem likely. Like what are... The factors, and then I know a lot of, you know, we talk about, we've talked about some correlates of intellectual humility, but that doesn't necessarily mean causation, you know, it doesn't mean that those things cause it. So, yeah, so maybe we could go there. So the trait versus state issue is an interesting one. Just briefly, when we think of traits, they're more enduring characteristics of our personality that we have that, you know, they, they can change over time, but, you know, often our difficult to change or require some work to change over time. And and some people would say that certain traits aren't likely to change. So in terms of your basic aspects of your personality, like how extroverted you are, or how agreeable you are, there's, there's often consistency across the lifespan. So those are traits. And then states are more something that's happening in the moment. Like, are you feeling a certain way, high or low? So when we talk about intellectual humility, at least in the research thus far, most of that research has been looking at it as a trait. Yeah, I was going to say, there's an article that listed out the different dimensions of intellectual humility, like what's actually being measured. And most of the categories said trait next to them. It was like traitor state. And like it was like 90% of them said trait, which I was like, well, that's a bummer. But traits are not <laughs> entirely set in stone. Sure. It just takes like if I want to be temporarily happy and there's like a joint that I could smoke, well, I can change my state to be temporarily happy quite easily. But it won't last longer than 90 minutes or whatever, right? If I want to change my trait to be happier more often, if I want enduring happiness, well, then I got to make changes in my life. I, I might need to change like my diet or exercise habits. I might need to do some CBT with a therapist. I might, you know, right? Like, so there, it's not that you can't change traits. It's just harder and takes more work, right? That's right. I think this is an open question because we don't have much research looking at actually changing intellectual humility and whether that's possible to do. We're actually starting a big research project, an RFP through Templeton, which is a request for proposals for studies that will look at developing or, or increasing levels of intellectual humility and seeing how to do that. So we don't have much research now, but hopefully in a few years we will. But but yeah, I think our hope is that we would be able to shift our trait of intellectual humility and not just maybe like feel open momentarily to different perspectives. Yeah, in the same article I just mentioned that had a bunch of great tables in it. It was one of the Porter articles. There's also like a circle and it says like there's all these barriers to intellectual humility. And then there's like the little one. Do you remember seeing this, Dan? I don't know. Personal, interpersonal and cultural. And in the personal one, there's like 
confirmation bias, perceptions of threat, and then interpersonal, it's like need to protect your social status and stuff. And then there's even more. And it's like, there's so many arrows going so many directions. It's like, wow. It's like, there are a lot of barriers to to this, to, to actually saying, you know, I might be wrong about this, you know, probably especially, especially if you're really embedded in a community that shares these beliefs, certain beliefs, you know. We've talked about a few of these before, but I think there's definitely pressures to not be intellectually humble. I mean, you know, we talked about some individual pressures around religion and how being certain allows you to have a sense of existential security and afterlife. You know, there's a lot of things like that. And then socially, too, if you're part of a a cultural group that all believes the same thing, I think sometimes in churches and probably other groups too, your beliefs about certain things can be seen as a marker that you're part of the group. And so sometimes I think if you express a different difference of opinion on something, you know, that could be something like, oh, like maybe you're not one of us. And that can have, you know, far ranging consequences for folks. Well, so Sari, I I like that you brought up that graph or whatever it is, table, the, the big circles from the, from the Porter review article about the threats to intellectual humility. Because as Josh said, you know, we don't actually yet really know how to grow it, (laughs) but maybe at least right now we can say, here are some threats to it. And we could uh, surmise that recognizing those threats and being aware of them can't hurt if you're wanting to grow in intellectual humility. And then later the researchers will tell us how to, how to better ourselves (laughs) through their careful work. So there's personal threats, interpersonal threats, and cultural threats. Josh, where should we start in kind of briefly talking through each of these? You know, I mean, we could start at the individual level and yeah. then work our way out if that helps. You know, one of the one of the threats at the individual level in that article talks about uncertainty. And so that's a good example of one that I think a lot of the times as individuals and as Christians too, if we, if we want to talk about religion, uncertainty is seen as something that is bad or difficult or uncomfortable. And we want to change that or address that and become certain. And, and like I said before, it feels really good to be certain about what we believe. And if we talk about it in a religious context, in some Christian traditions, you know, a person's faith, almost like the level of their faith, is equated with how certain they believe what they believe. Kind of kind of like the idea that if you had a lot of faith, you could, you know, move this mountain and throw it into the sea and, and kind of this idea. So so in some of those traditions, it's almost like if you're humble about aspects of your faith, that's seen as a bad thing. And I think that's a problem, but I don't know necessarily how to how to shift it or address it. Sari, I know that you uh, very much have been in those kind of church environments. My, my experience has been a little less so, but it makes me think of Catholicism where kind of the closer you are, maybe pre Pope Francis, but the closer you are to the seats of power, to the archbishops, to the whatever, the kind of more, at least you get the impression of the catechism is right. The church teaching is right. And then you get like the orders who are kind of further out and they're the ones who are open to like, interreligious dialogue and, and intermystical dialogue and, and sort of the, the edges blur for Thomas Merton, the edges blur for Richard Rohr, right? Like that, that's maybe an example um, from the outside where it, it seems to kind of map onto that. Yeah. I mean, I was, I grew up in a fair, a conservative reformed church and it was all about right belief. So, you know, the standard is orthodoxy and that's still the case for, you know, most churches. It's like, and kind of the more you learn, this is the thing, right? The more you learn, the more, and I was even taught this explicitly, I think, the more you learn about your the theology, the church's doctrine, the more sort of culpable you are hmm. for having right belief, which in that case, it'd be better not to learn very much about theology. <laughs> <laughs> because like, even, you know, like we were so strongly Calvinist that I, that I, you know, was in conversations where we talk about, like, if you weren't a Calvinist, you might not actually be saved, like, because you got the gospel wrong, you know, you have to have all the right, the right belief. So in that sense, it becomes very, very important to get, to get it right, because your eternal destiny is, 
is the risk. So yeah, that's what I think about, but I'm not there anymore. Thank God. <laughs> One thing you mentioned, I thought was interesting, like maybe it'd be better not to learn it at all. Yeah. And there, there is that feeling sometimes, especially among conservative Christians who have got felt like they've gotten burned and now they're going to raise their kids with, with no religion. And I thought there's a book by Richard Rohr called Falling Upward. And it, I, I really like it. He talks about two different halves of life. And he talks about in the first half of life, you're, you're really trying to learn and develop your structures for how you think about the world and what you believe. And, and then your second half of life often involves kind of loosening those boundaries and learning about, about others and kind of broadening your perspectives. So anyways, I, and it, I think there is something developmental that happens that's developmentally normative where we, at, in the beginning of our lives, we kind of try to figure out what we believe and, and what we're learning. And then we tend to be more flexible as we grow older. I have a kind of an ongoing conversation with myself and others about that claim of Roars in Falling Upward, which which I read. Just I'll briefly say, I think that that was his experience. I think that that experience can be good for people. I'm not convinced that we should universalize that in any way, that it would be like good to give children dogmatism because like the, yeah. you, can, you can operationalize that into a claim about human psychology and you can say, look, you need boundaries and rules and a brick wall so that later you can push against them. I don't think that there's actually evidence for that. I think there's actually some evidence for the opposite, which is that we could save our kids a whole lot of shit if we don't give them that. Now, that doesn't mean we don't give them any truth claims or, or like family values or religious values, but like you raise a kid with the idea that openness to other people and other faiths is a virtue. Like Tony and Trip were raised that way. You know, we, a lot of our friends were raised that way. Doesn't seem to have hurt them. In fact, they have a lot less baggage around that issue than we do. And I'm not really, sh I'm not sure that there is evidence that it ought to be that way. It can be that way to heal from it. And that's great. And that is a very viable path of healing, of reconstruction, of whatever. That's my, again, I, this, I'm not an expert on this, but I've been thinking about it and reading about it for almost a decade. And that's my current sense. I think I, think I tend to agree with you on that. And maybe we would maybe meet in the middle a little bit and say, it's it, it's probably good for parents to provide their kids with some sort of structure. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's basic developmental psychology, though. I mean, the kids yeah. got to be able to predict what their day is going to be like. I just don't know that Muslims go to hell needs to be a part of that structure. <laughs> you know? Right. No, but like Roar, Roar wouldn't say that either. <laughs> no, yeah, Roar, no. Roar I'm sure that. he wouldn't. I'm sure he wouldn't. That's true. Um, He's one of the yeah. good guys, Dan. Come on, don't be overly. It, it brings me. It makes me think about attachment. So, are you are you exactly with attachment theory? Kind of yeah. the, yes. the need to provide a secure base for your children and yes. the need to provide space for for exploration. There's but that's Sandage. where it gets complex because you don't you don't have to then overcome your secure attachment later. Like I'm still securely attached to right. my mom. Right. Like, so, and, and that's how it's supposed to be. So I'm not sure, you know, like, obviously I don't <laughs> lean on her for the same things I did when I was <laughs> under her care, but like that, that's the part, you know, so it, it's like, oh, that sounds like attachment, but then it's different than attachment because you don't have to transcend and include your secure attachment. Yeah. Right. So I just, it just gets, look, I like Roar, Sari, don't worry. I like a lot of things <laughs> about him. I know that broadly speaking, he's on the team or whatever. <laughs> Uh, and you know, my kind of c contemplative practice and, and how important that is to me. And, and so all that's great. I found the book helpful. I just yeah. sort of the way that he likes the Enneagram, it, it's kind of in my mind as like, okay, I think he gets a little over-inclusive of things that work for him. Okay. And that's what this is really about. It's not really about, <laughs> the, Enneagram. Really about it, the Enneagram. It always <laughs> comes back to the Enneagram. Shit. Every okay. conversation. Oh, all, right. All, right, all right. All right. All right. So to... <laughs> So to preserve my own sanity, let's move to interpersonal uh, threats. <laughs> this is interesting, Josh. I want to ask you about this because there are four things listed. They all interact with each other in the diagram. And uh, three of them pretty much seem bad to me or, or generally things we want to avoid. And then one of them seems very good on its face. So that the ones we might want to avoid as part of cultivating any sort of intellectual virtue, a need to attain and protect our social status. I mean, 
from a psychological lens, you want some social status or else you're drifting and your life becomes very bad, but maybe not maximizing social status, right? Uh, dogmatism toward the outgroup, not good. Ideological conformity towards in-group, not good. But then this fourth one, valuing relationships over epistemic accuracy. Uh, that seems kind of like a good thing, but that can actually lead to less intellectual humility. So can you talk us through that? My sense is what that is talking about is if we are in a group or in a relationship with someone and we highly value that group or that relationship and the group or relationship believes a certain thing as true, um, we may prioritize our loyalty to that relationship or that group yeah. ahead of kind of doing our due diligence and really thinking about what is actually the truth. Um, and so we may kind of put that aside and just go along with the group. Um, so my sense is that's kind of what they're getting at with that one. Yeah. Well, and if we think of intellectual humility in more of that kind of golden mean Aristotelian mean sense, then there might be times where it's like, yeah, like what's called for here is intense intellectual humility. This is a situation where it really matters what's true. Let's say I am the president of the United States and I'm being presented with policy ideas, but I have this really lovely person in my life that has an alternate experience with whatever the policy is about. Like, well, that would be a time where I would need to subsume that personal relationship or I'm going to piss off this senator or something, right? But I really think that this is the right thing to get through for a million people, then in that instance, it would be good to have epistemic accuracy because it's an epistemic accuracy question. But then there would be times where uh, accuracy of beliefs is less important than my relationship with another person. And so in that sense, it can be an issue of discernment. And I, I actually like that because intellectual humility can't be everything, right? It Like yeah. my whole life cannot be built merely around getting as close as I can to accurate claims. <laughs> like that's not, that's not a life. That's not a human life. That's an aspect of a human life. And so I sort of, I like how that puts it in context a bit. I think you're right in that intellectual humility isn't the end all be all. And so I think that's important to keep in mind. There may be like, like kind of like what you said with this, this aspect of value relationships over ap epistemic accuracy, like that could reduce your intellectual humility. So it's good to keep that in mind, but there could be situations where you're right, you're, you're in this situation and you know, like, is, is it more important for me to maintain the relationship or is it more important for me to be right? You know, I, I think a lot of times uh, it probably is more important to, to value the relationship, but, but sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it's important to, to take a stand and discover the truth. So if you had like not, wanted to upset the apple cart at all because it was really important that you maintained the highest possible level of relationship with all the people in your church group or family or whatever. And so then you opted not to consider the situation from your friend's perspective, then that would have hurt you both intellectually, but it also would have hurt a different relationship that you had. Right. So it, 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 it might end up being which relationships are we valuing over epistemic accuracy? And in that case, you were able to value one friendship and value epistemic accuracy. If you had valued the other relationships, then you would have had to sacrifice epistemic accuracy, right? That's right. That's right. We're complex. There's a lot going on. <laughs> a lot going on in those human brains of ours. The last category is cultural threats to intellectual humility. Josh, what do you have to say about that? When I think of cultural threats to intellectual humility, you know, there, there's a couple of different ways to think about this. I, I think one is that there, when you grow up in a certain cultural group, there are pressures to conform or you're socialized into a certain way of being. And it may be difficult to be open to differences of opinion or different beliefs or values outside of the cultural group which you are raised. There's probably some overlap between that and, and the relational factors that we talked about earlier. But I think also probably what, what Porter was talking about here a little bit more is that there's, there may be certain cultural groups that are more likely to value or not value as much 
intellectual humility in general. So for example, there may be certain groups or communities where interdependence or loyalty is more important than right. kind of searching for epistemic truth. Yeah. And in that case, it's discernment whether or not, you know, what what you think is valuable and you might agree with your group that that is more valuable, that like respecting the elder, you know, in this particular yes. situation is more important than deriving accurate information, you know, whatever conclusions from information. And and that would be a matter of, of individual or situational discernment is how I would think of it. Yeah, I just pulled up the article and I do see that she's comparing different cultures where independence is valued over interdependence, like in the U.S. versus like in Japan, where a lot of social coordination is valued. And right. Like that. Yeah, that makes sense. Josh, thank you so much. Joshua N. Hook. We got to give you back your <laughs> academic title for the end here. Thanks so much we're, for walking friends, through this. You, you now we're Josh. buds. Okay, now we're buds. <laughs> we're going to get to hear from you on some of these future intellectual humility sort of topical episodes that will come out later. So listeners will get to hear your voice again. But, but thanks for chatting with us today. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Josh. <laughs>